0: You are listening to the sermon podcast from Christ Community Church, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You can find more sermons and resources at ardmoreccc.com. Now, here's Pastor Artie Farb with today's message. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to continue to uh, our, our study of the book of Colossians and. and um, Again, originally we planned to be finished through May. We're kind of inching that up just a little bit as we go because uh, these verses in particular are so rich with theological and devotional information that we really I want to take our time to kind of soak it in a little bit and not do not go too fast. And so this morning we're going to just look at uh, verses 18 through 20. And and what what I hope that we can see uh, at the at the end of our time together this morning as a recognition of the way that the gospel is summarized and proclaimed right here in these verses. And so um, let's just jump right in and take a look at how Paul is going to celebrate the truth and the mystery of the gospel. And as we do, I want to just je- to, to remind you of a principle we talked about last week. Whenever we're reading scripture... Uh, the first intention is for us to respond to what it declares with 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 joy and openness and wonder and awe, and to understand that all that can be understood about God is not going to be not going to be encapsulated in every single book and so not every. the Bible is not intended to a- answer every single one of our religious and existential questions it is to provide us with the vision of who God is, his intention for humanity and to teach us all that we need to know in order to thoroughly understand and have a relationship with God but it doesn't mean that it answers all of our questions and so, so I think it's important whenever we're studying the scripture to say this is what the scripture says and 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 this is why it says this, and this is how I respond where we, we have to be cautious is when we start theorizing about how that works. Because my experience is, when we start theorizing before long, we start elevating our theories to the same level of authority of Scripture. And when we've done that, we've stepped too far. And so, and, and the other thing is, when we come up with theories to explain something that the Bible has kept silence about, then what I think that we t- we're in danger of is robbing ourselves of the awe and wonder that we're supposed to take away. Away from this expansive beauty of the gospel of grace and, and we, we, we can we can diminish that enthusiasm by trying to explain it all away and and you'll see why I reminded you of that as we get down in the heart of this text because this is one of those texts in particular where uh, uh, folks are, can uh, be tempted to To do that. So let's just read these verses and then we'll just kind of walk through this section. Uh, We're picking up from when we were two weeks ago. We ended with verse 17, and so we're going to pick up at verse 20. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Now, if you've been a believer for a length of time and you've been uh, part of churches or Bible studies, you'll recognize that some significant themes that go to the heart of the Gospel, this announcement of what Jesus has done for. For humankind are found right here in these verses. So let's walk through this. 18, let's look at it again. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, Here's a principle here, and I'm going to try to limit myself because I actually think I want to return to this idea next week and let's explore it a little bit more fully. But uh, for now, let's suffice it to say, let's take a look at this phrase here where it says that, that that Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. In other words, what he's talking about is a reference to the resurrection. And and if you go over, there's a lot of parallel Uh, 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 ideology that's here in this verse in Ephesians and in Philippians. And in Philippians 2 if you're familiar that, that, that hymn in Philippians 2 where it talks about Jesus pouring himself out and taking the form of the servant. Even there it also says that God raised him up so that he could have preeminence. And This idea is right here in this verse as well. It says that the reason why Jesus is the firstborn from the dead is so that he might come to have first place in every everything that idea runs to the heart of what it means to go through a process of discipleship transformation because because in one way we could say what discipleship is is a are are a multiplicity of micro adjustments to yielding more fully to the lordship of jesus because the goal of this whole thing is for him to have first place in everything. Now Paul's saying that at a a macro level and saying throughout the universe, the goal is for Jesus Christ to have first place. But as we look at that macro revelation, then we have to have a micro revelation response. So even though that's true of the cosmos, what on the day-to-day is even as important, if not more important, is that I understand what does that mean for me? Well, it means that I'm also invited to participate with the purpose behind the resurrection life in my soul, which is increasingly learning to give Jesus Christ first place in everything, everything. This This is why, for the follower of Jesus, most of the challenges and issues of our life at some level are going to involve some sort of discipleship response. And so, for example, uh, I am a big advocate of, of going to counseling and, and, and working through um, our challenges. I'm also a big proponent, and I've, I, I uh, uh, often recommend particular marriage counselors for people to uh, that I would recommend them to see. But at the end of the day, it's it still, it, it, the answer to might not be just brushing up on our communication skills or learning how to understand one another better, although that's part of it, but will still also include those moments when your partner may or may not understand you or be responding to you the way you uh, wish that they would, and then those moments you love and serve them because you're a follower of Jesus. Not because of what it's gonna do to the marriage. But if we consistently do that, those little micro movements where we allow the character of Christ to be expressed through us result in a long term transformation, both of ourselves and of our relationships. So this is the purpose, is that is that so Jesus could have first place in everything. This is the goal of the gospel. Again, and I try not to say this as much because I don't want to rub people the wrong way or be misunderstood. But but I've tried to, to 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 articulate that if we're going to go to the scripture to understand our, to get our understanding of the gospel, then we have to be willing to let go of man constructed formulas that are supposed to explain the gospel because what you'll say he, see here is he paul doesn't say and he's firstborn from the dead so that those who respond in prayer at camp can know for sure that they will go to heaven after they die but but for most of us raised in the bible belt in evangelical circles, we, we, we come away with the assumption that that is the goal of the gospel. The individual being assured that they'll go to heaven when they pass away. But what Paul says here, he doesn't mention any of that. He says the goal of the gospel is actually bigger than your uh, individual eternal destiny, as big as that may be. What he says is, purpose of the gospel, the purpose of the resurrection of Jesus is so that he might have first place in everything. Scott McKnight, uh, professor, uh, A seminary professor says this about this verse. Here we come face-to-face with the gospel itself, which is more than a message of salvation. The gospel is the declaration that Jesus of Nazareth, who lived, who died, and who is risen to the right hand of the Father, is the world's true lord and king now i understand that that creates questions for us how do we explain the discrepancy between uh what we read about god's dream or vision for the world and how the world actually is and 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 if there is a discrepancy between those two realities might it mean that christ might not be as in control as we think that he is no it does not mean that in fact one of the things that we have to reconcile ourselves to Two, the fact is we are not on earth in order to enforce Jesus as Lord. He is already Lord. He doesn't need our help to make that happen. It is not our goal to make sure that the culture responds to that in the appropriate way. It is our job to simply serve the culture in love so that Jesus can be reincarnated, if you will, through the life of our love, ministry, and service so that they can see up close and tangible this God who is already in control of the cosmos. He is already savior he is already lord of all so this moves Paul to move into why this is so why is it that jesus is resurrected and and to the point that he has first place in everything so we recognize that he is lord over the cosmos why is that well he's going to go on to begin again to explain that the reason why this is accomplished is because jesus is more than a man What he says here in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, do I believe that there's value in simply uh, studying Jesus as a philosopher, a religious teacher? Well, yes. He embodies and speaks the truth. And so there is value in learning from him and following him. But but what we have to understand is is that simply following the teachings of Jesus falls short of the call of New Testament faith. It is a recognition that the man, Jesus, that we study and that we serve and that we follow is more than a man, but rather he is the incarnation of God himself. And the terms that the Apostle Paul and the Scriptures use to describe that relationship are phenomenal, and frankly, without faith, they're somewhat unbelievable, because this idea is that God chose to dwell among people by enclothing himself in the flesh, and this word that is used for uh, to, whenever the scripture says to have all his fullness dwell in him, this word for fullness simply means some. Total. It means truly the sum total fullness of who God is, is seen in Christ. And that has powerful implications for our own following of Jesus, our understanding of God, and the way in which we embody and position ourselves before the world that needs to be liberated by the truth of the announcement of the gospel. Because it reminds us that... If you are confused about what God may be like, you can always look to Jesus because God is like Jesus. We haven't always known that God was like Jesus, but now we do. So we look to Christ to understand what God is like, which means that our understandings of God has to be informed by what we see in the life of Jesus. That's why... It is so critically important that if we're gonna prioritize Bible study, it's important that we take time to soak in the message of the gospel because we're doing more than just learning about Jesus when we do that. We're doing more than just learning about the teachings of Jesus when we do that. What we are doing is getting the most accurate snapshot of the nature and character of God himself. Now, I won't belittle that point because we talked a lot about it, Uh, but it has stirred conversation since those weeks as people have shared with me honestly that yes there's this idea that God is one way and Jesus is another that God is kind of scary but Jesus is kind of he's much more accessible and then if you bring in this idea and say well Jesus is God it's the fullness of God dwelling in them well then there's almost this assumption that God has been changing he's gotten nicer the more he's gone along he was kind of cranky in the Old Testament and and I you know then, then somewhere in between there maybe he got on Prozac, or he saw Dr. Phil something, but he worked through some issues and then he comes to Jesus and says, Okay, I need some serious rebranding because of how angry I was back in the old days. So, would you get down there and let him know what a nice God I am? But see, that's not true. God has always been like Jesus. We have not always known that God was like Jesus, but now we do so we can understand what God's like by understanding what Jesus is like and we did a whole message on that a few weeks ago that you can go back and look if you're interested but then he says not just in his fullness but he dwelt this word dwelt which we're gonna expand on this a little bit more next week because I think that the implications are staggering and beyond the scope of just one message. Um, it, this idea that he dwelt in Christ means that he settled down as a permanent resident, that is to say, in a fixed dwelling place, as one's personal residence. It suggests down to the finest exact details. So what is happening when it says that God allowed his fullness to dwell in Christ? Something more is happening than just God's getting a meat suit so he can be up close and personal. There's something more going on here. This is why in the history of Christianity and the development of Christian doctrine, there were men who were willing to give their lives and suffer banishment in order to maintain fidelity or faithfulness to. To the idea that Jesus is both God and human, because the temptation is always to concentrate on one and, and see it as more significant than the other, but it is both and, and the reason why that's important isn't just for the sake of Jesus's mission, but the statement that's being made in the incarnation is the dream of God is that divinity and humanity are one. And we have the hardest time believing that. We live a dualistic life that doesn't adequately appreciate the unity that we've been given in with God as an, as, as an ongoing expression of the statement he makes in the incarnation. And we emphasize separateness. We, we, we say things like, I'm trying to search for God. I'm trying to find God. I've turned my back on him. None of these things are possible because God is so saturated and so part of your soul that you can no more distinguish it than you can from air and your lungs he is always present animating and that's what the powerful statement of the incarnation is which we're going to see in this verse as Paul goes on to expand upon this idea but what I want you to see is you can see it all over the scripture is that God's desire is to present for us this vision this dream not of separateness but of unity and that's what we see in Christ because the fullness of God took up resident down to the finest details in the life of Jesus so that brings us into verse 20 which is where I want to end today because it's the last verse we are reading but I want to focus on verse 20 this morning And through him, meaning Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, as I said earlier, if we look at those verses, there are some themes there, reconciliation, peace, and the blood shed on the cross. These are some of the basic building blocks of understanding the gospel. And many of us, if we grew up in church, may be familiar with them, but let's take a moment to to dive in here and, and investigate what all that might mean. First of all, let's look at this phrase. Through him, through Christ, God reconciled everything to himself. This is not the only place that it says that. There, that this idea is celebrated both in Romans and uh, in the book of First Corinthians chapter five. It might be 2 Corinthians chapter five. I always get that mixed up, so... Uh, I apologize for that, but, you know, the Google will clarify it for you, and so so this idea is saturated in the New Testament, and it has powerful implications both in our relationship with God and in our relationships with one another and in relationships of, um, uh, of, of differing tribes and ethnicities, but we won't go into all of that, but that's how um, prominent this idea and this theme is in the New Testament. So, this word reconcile, what does it mean? I'm not going to butcher the pronunciation of the Greek, but I put it there in your notes for those nerdy people that like that sort of thing. But what it means is this it means to reconcile completely. And my experience is believers understand that they have to believe in the reconciliation. But we we tend to live reconciliation with uh, conditions. The idea that we are reconciled completely is I have rarely seen a Christian actually live out of that reality. There is all these, always these conditions, and we have this voice in our head that highlights our own inconsistencies, that highlights our own hypocrisies, that, that highlights our own ways of, uh, of seeing discrepancy between what we aspire to and what we live, and over time, what happens is we lose the joy of actually trusting that we've been reconciled completely. Now, we may trust that for other believers around us, but we always hold ourselves in a category where we are maybe one step further from God than maybe some of the people that we respect uh, around us. But this idea is that there is nothing lacking in your reconciliation with God. And when I say your, I mean you as a human. I don't just mean you as an individual. I mean God has reconciled the world to himself. And that reconciliation is a complete reconciliation. There is nothing that can threaten it. There is nothing that can break it. It is rock solid as God himself. So it means to reconcile completely. So let's take a moment and think about this because... We can have a Bible study and talk about this and and maybe we'll all sit around in the circle and say, yes, amen. And maybe we'll open our notebooks or our notes in our phones and we'll say, reconciliation means God has reconciled himself to the world completely like the scripture says. Maybe we'll be so inspired to tweet it or to put it on Facebook. However, the question is, does the acknowledgement of that reality affect your posture toward the world as well? And too often times in my life, I am given lip service to the idea of reconciliation, but I treat people outside of my tribe as though they're further away from God than I am. And so I'm embracing complete reconciliation for myself, but I hold others in suspect. And so then that allows me to create this us and them category that you don't see valued in the life of Christ. And, and so, so once I create that us and them category, well, then I've started breaking down my faithfulness to my own theology because now I'm categorizing some of us are reconciled completely while some of us are not. And if uh, I can convince you that you're not reconciled complete, completely, maybe I'll be able to convince you that you need what I have to say or what I might have to sell in order for you to have that same experience. This is something that God is opposed to. Because the whole idea of a new covenant means the end of all mediated religion. That is why. This is the stuff that gets me in trouble. Um, But that is why when even Christianity itself organizes in such a way that it creates a mediating class between the believer and God, it is being thoroughly unfaithful to Jesus. And although we, it's not appropriate for us to question our Lord and Savior Jesus, it is at not only appropriate but necessary that we are discerning and we question the organization that's been organized in his name apart from anything he intended to do on earth by the way that's all stuff that we did later after he left you're not going to find instructions for how to lead and organize a christian church in the teachings of jesus he didn't emphasize that these are all structures that we put together now am i saying that the structures are wrong absolutely not because of this structure i can pay my light bill So I'm gonna be honest with you and say, yeah, I have an invested interest in not undermining this whole thing because then I'm gonna be out of a job. No, but in all seriousness, it's okay to organize. It's okay to figure out how to articulate our experience of faith. But we always have to remember that these are man-made structures that we're doing our best to be faithful to Jesus, but it is possible to be faithful to Christianity and unfaithful to Christ. And if that is, happens, then our understanding of the man-made organization Christianity needs to be tweaked and rethought. Not only do we have permission to do this, it is our responsibility in every generation to make sure how we are organizing maintains faithfulness to the vision and the dream of God for humanity and the God that we see manifest in the life of Christ. Okay, back to your notes. So here's the question is God in a posture of anger or hostility to the world? I am not presuming to know all there is to know about the mind of God. I am weak and I am growing. I am learning too, but At this point in my journey, when I look at the scripture and I see that reconciliation means to reconcile completely, I don't see how that is fitting with also a vision of God who postures himself resisting the world. That doesn't make sense to me. It might make sense to you, and it might be because you're smarter than me, and you figured out something I haven't figured out yet. And I don't mean that as a joke, I mean that sincerely, because I know that my ideas ebb and flow as I grow. But I don't see how we can maintain representing a God who is at odds and anger and hostility to the world, and also a God that says, I've accomplished complete reconciliation by Christ's blood shed on the cross. It seems to me that we have to belittle the effectiveness of Christ's blood on the cross in order to maintain an idea that God is still not reconciled to other humans, but rather he looks upon them with hostility or anger. But my friends, we do it all the time. National disasters, overwhelming devastation from weather, terrorist attacks, what do Christians immediately do? It won't take long for you to get on the Google and find someone who is making a connection between God's anger toward America or whatever nation and the tsunami that, tsunami that just came. Well, what are they doing? They're saying they don't trust that God has reconciled himself completely to the world through the shed blood of Jesus. He still wants to punish the world. He is still angry. And if there's a section of the country that, didn't vote for God's candidate, then he's going to send them a tsunami or a tornado or an earthquake depending on where they are. We all know he doesn't do that to the tornado people. We still haven't figured out why he gives us those. Most, And that's funny. Most of us don't say that when we have a disaster of tornadoes. I have never, except for one, fringe, crazy, cultic group. I have never heard someone say, well, Tornado Alley had another devastating tornado. God must be mad at us for something. What's our voting record like? What's our politics? What are our policies? What are we allowing and not allowing in our schools? Because it certainly upset God because he sent a tornado. I don't hardly hear that about us. However, when I hear conversations on speculating about disasters in other places, well, that has to be evidence that God was angry. Maybe, Again, I'm not trying to presume I know everything, but what I am saying is my mind, and maybe it's because my mind is small, I don't understand how we continue to have this posture of antagonism while at the same time gathering together week after week and raising our hands and singing songs about how complete the work of Christ was on the cross. How can we sing that with our lips and then, then act so differently when we leave here? This inconsistency has to be addressed. So, is God in a posture of anger or hostility to the world? I think that my answer is no. Well, that's a bold statement already. What's your proof? Why not? Why is God not in a posture of anger? Well, if I look back at the text, my answer would be, why not? Because he has made peace through his blood and completely reconciled everything to himself. I I am open to dialogue and pushback, but as long as we understand the way we frame the conversation isn't with Artie's ideas, let's talk about the text. If the text doesn't mean God reconciled everything to itself himself, when it says God reconciled everything to himself, okay, then the burden of proof is on the opposite interpretation. Then what does it mean? How is it that we explain away and how do we take away from the optimism of this good news so it's more palatable? I don't know. Because I think what this text says, text says is that God is not an imposter of hostility. Why? Because he has made peace through his blood and completely reconciled everything to himself. And do you remember what John said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Bible Belt evangelicals who have mastered the formula finally after 1,500 years of frustrating church history. Oh, we didn't say that. All right, well, let's be a little more generous, but not too generous. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Protestants. Well, I think we can be a little more generous than that. All right. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Christians. I like that. That's kind of my interpretation that I would prefer. And I lived by that a long time because then I was part of the good guys and I had the enemies out there, the us and them. Unfortunately for poor little old Artie, that is not what John said. What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the The one obstacle that would have created hostility between humanity and God has been removed, not by us and our good behavior and our cleverness. It has been removed because God has taken the initiative to remove it. What we're talking about here is the idea of the doctrine of the atonement. I'm not going to go too deeply into all the theological implications because this is a really big idea. And honestly, believers have been speculating on the atonement and what it means literally since Jesus flew away. We've immediately begun speculating on it. We have all these ideas, and really, honestly, again, if you're nerdy enough, you might already know what I'm talking about, or you may be curious to get on the Google, or you can buy me some coffee and we'll talk about it. But the truth of the matter is, it's interesting. It is not the Spirit and the work of Jesus that divides the body of Christ. It is our doctrines and a lot of time is our doctrines where we're trying to explain the mechanics of something that the bible hasn't explained the mechanics of so that is true when it comes to our idea of Atonement. I am not a, at this point in my journey, someone who believes that one theory of, the to- of, the, of atonement explains the gospel. I do not believe that. I think all of these theories allow us to see in a mirror dimly some aspects of what atonement means. But let's jump into what the text says about it. What is atonement, the doctrine of atonement? It's simply the reconciliation of God and humankind through the sacrificial death of Jesus. So what is it? It's that God reconciled everything to himself. How did he accomplish this? By making peace through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. How does the blood of Jesus shed on the cross reconcile everything to God? The text does not say, nor does it even speculate on how it works. And if you wanna have coffee and tell me your opinion, I would be happy to listen to it and I may be really into that conversation and we might speculate and theorize as long as we understand we are theorizing, our, we were theorizing about um, the mechanics of the atonement in a way that the Bible simply doesn't make clear. And so it seems foolish that we, defy, that we divide over those theories. What is clear is this. Through the shed blood on the cross, God has reconciled everything to himself. Don't escape the wonder of that truth by trying to figure out how it all works. I think it is in keeping with wisdom for us to have humility and maybe even silence when the scripture decides to have silence and not keep going beyond that. So the text doesn't speculate. The focus of the text is not on how atonement works, but rather on what it accomplished. And what does the blood, Jesus' blood shed on the cross accomplish? It accomplishes the reconciliation of everything to God. This means that there is no obstacle or distance between you and God's presence and favor, and if there is one it's one that you've erected in your mind and it's an illusion it is not real the only hindrances to your full experience of God's favor are the toxic beliefs that indulge your unbelief the toxic beliefs that indulge your unbelief identifying repenting and rejecting those toxic beliefs are what the process of discipleship is really all about it is not simply learning how to cultivate habits that make god happier with you discipleship goes way deeper than the external actions of my life even though it encompasses those no discipleship goes deeper and it and and it means that With the psalmist in Psalm 139, we pray, search me, O Lord, and try me, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way of your truth. And so we recognize that one of the hindrances to our ongoing flourishing in Christ can be toxic beliefs about God, ourselves, and the world that have been filtered in through our temperament, our assumptions, our experiences, and sometimes the doctrine that we were given Uh, whenever we weren't in as discerning of a season of life that we needed to be. So we have to be aware of those because this this is the battle. Paul says that. Paul says our battle isn't with flesh and blood. And he says what we're doing is we're trying to learn to take every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus because toxic beliefs. And another way of saying it more boldly is The lies that we believe about God hinder our ability to flourish in his grace. That's why it's utterly important that part of our process is being willing to be open to learning where we might have toxic beliefs or even untrue beliefs about God, which is why it is so important to get our understanding of God by looking at the life of Jesus. So that's the big picture. What does that mean for us as individuals? I'm glad you asked. Let's think about practically, what, what is a practical response to the revelation that God has reconciled everything to himself? What might that mean for me on a daily basis? Well, I was introduced to a book that has become kind of my favorite book of the season, a book by the, entitled Atomic Habits by James Clear. And in that book, he has a quote and he says this, Changing our identity and beliefs about ourselves is the quickest and most effective way to change our habits. Changing our identity and beliefs about ourselves is the quickest and most effective way to change our habits. Now, I will go on record to say I have never met James Clear. I have never had a conversation with him about his spirituality. I don't know what he thinks about God. I don't know what he thinks about Jesus. Um, But, I can still recognize wisdom when I see it, and I can still give glory to God for the wisdom that I see, regardless of where it may come from. Because this is gold, my friends. Because this speaks to the heart of one of the greatest failures of evangelical discipleship, and I believe speaks to why we are, there is now a movement among our uh, younger generations that's called the ex-evangelical movement and it is growing by leaps and bounds every year. What is an It is someone who found that in order to stay faithful to Jesus, they felt they had to walk away from the evangelical church. That's a different category than someone that says, oh, I took a freshman philosophy course, and now I realize God doesn't exist, so I'm out of here. I know that we love to tell those stories about those evil college professors that are robbing us of our youth. That is not... The, I'll stop right there. That is not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about are people that felt in order to continue to be faithful to the God revealed in the life of Jesus, they had to leave their evangelical church in order to remain faithful to Jesus evangelicals Some of them have lost their faith, grant you. Some of them haven't lost their faith. They're just wandering around trying to find a, a, a community of real discipleship to Jesus. And one of the reasons why this has happened is because the evangelical discipleship process focuses first and primarily on actions and not on identity. It is a enormous mistake that I believe God is calling some of us to address in order to be faithful to Jesus in our generation. I think it's one of the callings of our community is to really contend with this reality. And I'm not saying that we found the answer, not at all. <clears throat> I think that we are in a place in a season of investigation, study, and prayer and to hear the Spirit to say, Lord, what are you calling us to do in response to this crisis that's been created by focusing on Sight rather than faith. Because I can see the actions, and then they allow me to justify my expertise in the knowledge of good and evil. I can look at your behavior. Your behavior is bad, yours is good. Yours could be better. It's better than Mike's, but it's not better than mine. Uh, So, yeah, we can do this. This is the mistake of the evangelical church. There there are two different approaches to change. And one is, I, I'm i going to change my actions. I'm going to stop smoking. I'm going to stop saying uh, uh, naughty words. Or I'm going to start walking every day. Or I'm, I'm going to start cleaning a dish every day. Which, that was my New Year's resolution. I've been faithful. Faithful to it from the beginning. You're welcome, my dear. And so, uh, I don't know why I said that. Because... Uh, never mind, never mind. I'm going to get myself into some gender discussions that I don't want to get into. Uh, that was a joke, by the way. I, I, I would never resolve to clean a dish every day. Uh, that, anyway, so, so whatever it is, you pick the action. I want to stop doing this action or I want to start doing this action. And the reason why, here's the thing, the reason why we do it, the motive for, for when we begin with actions first, the motive is always self-hatred. I don't like this about myself. So if I can act differently, maybe I can be different. And so we start with actions and we hope that by employing disciplined actions, we can change our beliefs. And if we change our actions and our beliefs or our processes for pursuing those actions, then maybe I will finally become someone that I'm not today. This is an enormous mistake. Because to fall for that kind of discipleship requires your unbelief in God reconciling everything to himself through Jesus Christ's blood on the cross. And this is why the Holy Spirit at some level will always resist it. Because he will not share the glory of Christ with you and your clever techniques and your clever behavior modification. That's not the message, that is not the good news so we don't start with actions belief and identity hoping that changing my actions will change my identity that's not new testament discipleship new testament discipleship begins with a revelation of news that you did not contribute to it happened to you which is this you are part of a new reconciled identity that's who you are you begin with not your sin Not your failure, not your fear. You begin with the revelation that you, through no effort or deservedness of yourself, have been given the gift of identity called the beloved of God. You are his beloved, and he does not give you the power to change that for him. You might change it for yourself and your experience of it, but you're not going to alter the heart of God. This is your identity. You're the beloved of God. If you will take time to let the Spirit work deep in your heart so that you are at rest and you really believe this new redeemed identity, then you'll believe that about yourself and those will then cause you to pursue very different actions. But it won't be actions that are rooted in the white knuckle of discipline. It'll just simply be the fruit of the Spirit that flourishes when I actually believe that I am all that God says that I am. And then there's no striving. It's just fruit bearing. Have you ever seen a fruit tree striving? Walk through your property and you hear this sound. I'm so stupid such a hypocrite. Ugh, what is that? Is that coming from the tree? Apple, Mr. Appletree, what's wrong? I'm just trying to bear fruit. It's so hard. It's so hard to be one of the separate ones who really care about bearing fruit in your life when somebody else, when all the other trees don't seem to care, but I care. So I'm trying so hard to bear fruit. You don't see that from Mr. Apple Tree. Mr. Appletree has something happen to him. He gets planted in obscurity, and then he he spends years growing in places that are imperceptible to the rest of us, because it's all happening beneath the surface, and his roots are going down deep into nourishment, and eventually that gives him the strength to begin to grow, and that... And as, he, and as Mr. Apple tree grows, he begins to flourish in branches. And before long, on Mr. Apple tree's branches are produced fruit that is not the result of the apple tree, but rather the nourishment that's flowing through the root system into the vine, into the branches. And there it is. And you can eat it, and it will nourish you, and it will bring you joy. So then, why? This is the analogy Jesus gives us in John 15. Are we striving so hard to become something that we think that we are not? You have to learn to rest and trust in who the gospel says that you are. That is the way we begin to experience micro adjustments that lead to major transformation and allow us to bear fruit. It's in the micro decisions, my friends. It is not in the crisis events. If I can just get to the next conference, if the preacher would just inspire me, if I could get, read the next book, hear the right podcast, have the right person pray for me, whatever your, your um, means of choice may be, uh, that, that, that is not how transformation happens. It's this micro-movements of responding to Jesus. How did Paul say it in Galatians 5? It's simply the process of keeping in step with Spirit. And as we do, the Spirit is responsible for producing fruit in our lives. Transformation happens as a revelation of one's identity in Christ. When this happens, our actions will flow from who we are rather than who we wish we were. There's this whole section on performance-based change and identity-based change that we don't have time to get into. So that's a bonus for you or if um, we may look at it again some other time, but we're not going you have it there in the notes, you can look at it. And I think the point has already been made in this approach. So, what I just want to focus on as we close is what it means to operate from identity based change. Understand that you are one with God by His life in your soul, Christ is in you, thus, all that is true of Christ is now true of you. Number two, from that revelation, daily pursue actions that are in keeping with the teachings and the life of Christ because his life is your life. When you see instruction for Jesus, you don't see a call to be something you're not, but to pursue actions that manifest who he has made you to be. Number 3 the fruit that flourishes from your actions will consistently manifest and quote prove that you are a unique expression of the life of Christ. Number 4 you trust and rejoice in the reality that Christ is in you Christ in you is who you are as a partaker of the divine nature. Now I know being raised in evangelicalism there are certain phrases that make evangelicals nervous. One of them is telling everyone that they're a partaker of the divine nature. Someone somewhere is already immediately saying, oh, wait, I heard a New Age seminar where New Age people talk about that. That, that. That's creeping in some syncretism, some false doctrine to the church. Well, I appreciate your discernment and your passion for truth. Therefore, I want you to see that these ideas are rooted in Scripture. If we look at 1 Peter 3... Uh, 1 verses 3 through 4 look at what it says his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness by these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature Christianity is not behavior modification it is participation with the divine nature it is internal and organic it's not external and forced so how do we respond as the worship team comes forward and we get ready to take communion i'll just remind you of our text this morning colossians 1 19 and 20 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. When I consciously respond to the revelation of Christ in me, the hope of glory, I then become, in fact, what I am in potential. Is this a potential that I have earned or created? No. This potential is made possible as a gift that has been secured by Christ's creation of a new reconciled humanity. God is reconciled to me. The question is, will I choose to be reconciled to him? Now that's what it means to respond to the gospel. That's what it means to quote, be born again that's what it means to become a christian is that in recognition of this glorious mystery that god has reconciled himself to me well i then choose to reconcile myself to him and that my friends is where your choice comes in if you're here with us this morning and you've either walked away or lost your faith or you're exploring faith, might I recommend that the place that you start is making the choice to embrace God's reconciliation of you by becoming reconciled to God. And if we can talk to you or pray for you with that, we would love to do so. That's what it means. That's the beginning place for this journey of transformation that results in your flourishing in the power of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and in the truth. Of